Good morning, everybody, and happy Mother's Day. Somebody's there, right? Oh, there you are. Okay, good, good, good. Um, sometimes the bright lights are just like I don't get to see everybody, and uh, I'm glad you're here. And for those celebrating Mother's Day, we wish you a very great day and uh, many, many, many blessings along the way. Um, we're continuing our series in the book of Colossians once again, in Colossians chapter 1. Uh, and I think we've been putting the verses up on the screen, that which were read, and that we're going to focus uh, particularly on verses 12, uh, 13, and 14, and Paul's prayer for, his, um, for the church at Colossae. I think it's interesting to note that, uh, as far as we know, Paul did not start the church of Colossae as opposed to some of the other letters that he wrote to churches that he started, but he had heard of their faith and he heard, had heard of the, what God was doing there and he reached out to them as kind of a, seems like a companion letter to the, the book of Ephesians. Now, as I've been working through this text over a little while, um, especially the last uh, three verses of it, chapter one, verses 12, 13, and uh, 14, it seemed to me that uh, he packs a lot of stuff in here, doesn't he? He really, really does. And it seems to me that, uh, you know, the, the illustration that struck me in the morning, but I caused some family stir, so I'm going uh, to low-key the illustration, but I, it, it, did occur, it did occur to me. I remember before COVID when we used to travel more and go on vacations and plan trips and things. Um, remember pulling out a suitcase. I don't know if you've seen your suitcase lately. You pull out the suitcase, and depending on what kind of person you are, uh, either a week before the vacation or the trip, or the day before the vacation or the trip, or the hour before you have to head to the airport, you pull out the suitcase, right? You pull out the suitcase, and depending on what kind of person you are, and this, there's no judgment meant here for anybody, uh, uh, you pack your suitcase. There are certain people who pack for every eventuality in the known world. Uh, they pack things that they haven't worn for years, but it goes in the suitcase because you never know, I may need it, right? Have you seen that? Have you done that? Is that you? If you do that, you know, God bless you, that's fine. No judgment, okay? No judgment. And some of us are the type who wait to the last minute and just kind of reach in the drawer and grab some stuff and throw it in the suitcase and uh, go on our way and, you know, happily live uh, regardless. Now, for the person who stuffs the f suitcase full, what happens generally is, is they get, to the, they get to their destination, wherever it may be, and they open the suitcase and they say, oh my goodness, what a disaster. And they, because what happened was, is uh, maybe they did it in haste or something like that, and what they found is that uh, they brought, you know, 10 extra pairs of socks that they're never going to need, and then, or, or, um, <laughs> the thought that, you know, I'm not sure I want to spend all my time on vacation, you know, ironing the clothes I threw in here uh, over time. So it's the sense of, and, and I, there's a spiritual point honest here, and the spiritual point is this, that when I read Colossians 1 verses 9 to 14, it just seems like Paul has opened up his suitcase and he has just thrown out everything that he has in it. He does. 
Now it seems, now be very careful here. I'm not, I'm not saying that Paul is disorganized or he's a last minute planner or he packs his suitcase poorly. I'm not saying that at all. The illustration dies at that point. However, as Pastor Mucci has been pointing out this last a few sermons in Colossians, we have a set of verses here from 9 to 14. that are just packed with stuff. And it takes a long time to unpack. And that's kind of the point that we want to make today. Is that, you know, we don't have all the hours of the day. I know that it's Mother's Day and that you probably have plans and we're approaching the noon hour and you're wondering, you know, what's one's lunch going to be? Where we're going to go? What we do? Maybe you have your plans. Maybe, maybe your food is cooking at home and you're ready. To, you want to go and eat. And, and we, get, we get that. And I will not keep you here uh, any longer than usual. Okay, I promise. I promise you that. But I do want to say that when you're reading the word over, you're going to say to yourself, Paul is saying a lot of things here. I have a slide, and I didn't, I should have sent it forward with my outline notes. I have the slide of these verses uh, diagrammed in Greek. Uh, a Bible program I used to use quite regularly has, uh, you know, diagrams, uh, the books of the Bible in, in Greek, and it would fill up the whole slide, just these, these from verses 9 to 14, it would fill up the whole slide, and it would look, it would look uh, like a nightmare uh, construction scenario. There's, there's verbs flying, and adverbs flying, and participles flying every which way. And so as we unpack these verses, please bear with us, right? Bear with us, because Paul, as Pastor Mucci has said, this is condensed greatness here, and we're kind of unpacking it. We're kind of laying it out for you and kind of showing you some highlights about what we need to think about. All that said, uh, one author has written a book on the prayers of Paul, and he's called Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 14, the content of a challenging prayer. And I think that's a very nice way of saying this, there's a lot of stuff in here. And it's not just easy, easy peasy stuff. It's deep stuff. It's, it's stuff that you really have to open your spiritual eyes for. You can't sleepwalk through this particular passage. It is, it is full of challenges for us. Now, we do want to make mention that in verses 9 to 14, as Paul is praying for, for these people that perhaps he had never met before, the idea, or at least some of them he had never met before, he is... He is he is kind of setting some definitions for us about what prayer is and what prayer is like. And you're going to notice some things about this prayer as you read it over. It is not your run-of-the-mill, you know, dear Lord, we're having a bad day, help us have a better day kind of a prayer. Uh, it's, not, it's, it's, it's a profound prayer, and it does deserve a lot of unpacking. If we can build on what Pastor Mucci has been discussing these last few weeks in Colossians, basically what we have here in this first chapter is a description of God's doing an incredible work. An incredible work where the gospel is spreading and bearing fruit all over the world. The gospel is going everywhere and people are responding to the message of God's love and the message of redemption in Christ and the message of the forgiveness of sins. God is doing an absolutely incredible work. And as we heard last week, God is inviting you and me and the readers of this letter and those who hear the words of Paul, God is inviting us to be a part of this work. That's not simply just a call to be a member at a church on the role of a church. You can do that fairly easy in a lot of different places and have your name on a role of a church. 
what Paul is inviting us to is to be actively involved in the work of the gospel wherever we are. And we can do that not because we're super gifted or super uh, special in any human sense of that word, but we can do it because God is the one who's doing the work in us. In his prayer for the Colossians, Paul is very God-centered. He is praying God's will for them in verse 9, right? That they would know God's will. That they would have spiritual wisdom and understanding. That they would work in a, uh, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And that they would bear fruit and increase in the knowledge of God. He is praying for all of us that we, as we join in the work of the ministry, the work of the gospel, that God's power would fill us in verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Wow. Paul's He's not, you know, I'm a, I'm a teacher, a professor, right, uh, on occasion. I teach a, a couple of classes a year. And uh, what happens, I find, is that sometimes if there's a word limit, right, students, will, you know, you, you know give, me, give me 500 words on this topic. And, uh, and, and students are really hard-pressed to find 500 words. And I get the sense that some students just kind of just throw some words in there just to get up to the word total, right? Paul's not doing that. Paul is taking God's glory and he's condensing the greatness of God's glory into a readable passage. But boy, does it need unpacking. And as, I, you, unpack, as you unpack it, imagine that suitcase opens up, that suitcase opens up, and it's just doesn't have all the stuff you've thrown in there. It has all of God's glory in there. And all of a sudden, that small suitcase you take, it expands to fill the whole room. That's what God, Paul is praying for here. This is what he is talking to us about here. And he's really, really encouraging us in our prayers. Not simply to pray for our circumstances. Because if I'm going to be completely honest, there's a lot of times that when I pray, I find myself praying something along this line. Now, not with this tone. I promise you, I don't have this tone. But it's along these lines. If you were to paraphrase and put it in kind of, you know, what it really sounds like. Dear Lord, today I'm having a really bad day. Can you change it for me now? Okay, God, I know you're really busy. And I know there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. I'm telling you what I'm going to do, Lord. I'm a patient guy. I will give you two hours to fix everything. I will give you, you know, and so, you know, our life is like that sometimes, right? And we give God our circumstance. And it's absolutely perfectly fine to give God our circumstance. But the expectation shouldn't be that, you know, he's some sort of genie in a bottle that it will appear and make your circumstance the way you want it to be. Because at that point, when your prayer sounds like that, and I promise you, I don't pray exactly like that. The idea is, the idea is, is that that whole prayer scenario of change my circumstance doesn't take into consideration any of what's discussed here about praying for God's will to be done or praying to be filled with fruit and filled with God's power. Maybe the difficulty that we're going through, maybe, maybe, would be a chance for God to show his power in our lives. Maybe if we're making a choice in life and we're praying for God's will, maybe we really need to stop and, and say, I'm praying for your will, God, not my will. 
And so all of those things are involved in this prayer. And you get to verse 12. And the first uh, phrase of verse 12, the first two words are giving thanks. And so today on Mother's Day, we give thanks for our moms or for those people, influential people in our lives when we were children who helped raise us and bring us up and teach us right from wrong. And we, we, give, thanks, uh, we give thanks for that. On Thanksgiving time in November, we give thanks, right? We go through our list of blessings that we have. And it's amazing sometimes uh, to me how easily we just kind of give physical blessings. Well, I thank the Lord that I had a pretty good year of good health or we had a pretty good economic year or uh, this good thing happened here or this good thing happened here. And those are all great to give thanks for. Not, not disparaging that for one second. However, the thankfulness that Paul has here in verses 12, 13, and 14 is a thankfulness that goes beyond circumstances. And, you know, that's the kind of spiritual depth. If we're going to do God's work in this world, in this crazy, lost, broken world filled with darkness, if we are going to do God's work, if we're going to partner with God in the work of the gospel, our eyes are going to have to be open wider to the physical realities around us to see God at work spiritually before our eyes. And in so doing, our list of things we're thankful for needs to increase from just those things that we see and have right in front of us to the things that we don't quite see yet, to the spiritual realities that God tells us about over and over and over again in the book of Colossians. And so today, what, what, is, what are we going to focus on in Paul's prayer? We're going to focus on this idea of thanksgiving and how God's people, according to Paul, must be thankful. And I think the word to me that summarizes 12 and 13 and 14 of Colossians chapter 1 is the word victory. To be thankful for the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. And in verses 12, 13, and 14, we see the victory that we have in Jesus Christ shown in three different pictures. The first one is in verse 12. It is the picture of inheritance. We are giving thanks to the Father, Paul says, who has qualified you, and I think he's embracing himself here as well, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, the picture of inheritance. Again, that's a very, you know, earthly term we're familiar with, inheritance. I don't think Sophia will mind if I tell a story about her. When she was little, we explained, I explained to her the concept of inheritance. She's just a you know, little kiddo, as sweet as pie. And I said, you know, the inheritance is like the money you get when mommy and daddy die. And I don't know why we're so morbid in our house, but we just, I just mentioned that to them. And she looked at, she looked at me and she says, I call mommy's money. <laughs> and she's, she's pretty smart. She knows what she's talking about. So the idea is, the idea is, is that, you know, all the inheritance is money you get. Well, no, well, here in scripture, it's a completely different thing. It's a completely different thing. It's the idea of Paul writing to predominantly a Gentile church, as far as we can tell, a church filled with non-Jews, and he is telling them, guess what? In the Old Testament, 
The Jews are the people of God. In the New Testament, Gentiles have been added. The sense of, the sense of the riches of his glorious inheritance, which Ephesians chapter 1 describes, it's a joining of the Jew and Gentile together in one church. And he says, you used to be off, you know, you were not on the inheritance list. You were not on the roll. You were not, you were not part of this package. But now because of God, he has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You, brothers and sisters, have God's inheritance. You have this great victory. You don't have to worry about the future. You have to be worried about whether you'll be included or excluded. You are in. And how did you get in? Because you're great, you're sharp, you're a good dresser, you know, your hair combs perfectly. None of the, none of the above. Did you get in because you passed the spiritual IQ test? Did you get in because you, you were great at Bible trivia? Or you, you, know, you could diagram Greek sentences? No, you got in because the Father has qualified you. All of the things that we're talking about today for the things that we're supposed to be thankful for are things that God has done for us, that God is doing for us, and that God will continue to do for us in the future. And so he says, you... Child of God, have this great inheritance. We're thankful for that. We ought to be thankful for that. Thankful for the spiritual heritage we have in the Word. Thankful for the spiritual heritage we have by being a follower of Christ. That's verse 12. There's a second picture, and I just really want to think about this with you for, for a moment. The Father has delivered us, verse 13, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. It's the picture of light triumphing over the darkness. The spiritual pictures in the Bible, as it talks about spiritual warfare and, and all those things, seems, you know, you know, it's a challenge for us who are very physical-minded and very aware of our physical world to think about the spiritual challenges of, of light and dark. But I think you understand what Paul means here when he talks about light and dark. I think you get it. But it's just, and, and let me just throw out some explanations. To be in the dark is to be spiritually blind, right? That you can't see. You can't see your hand in front of your face. To be spiritually in the dark, if someone's in the dark, what does that mean? Well, I mean, I guess the teenagers might use the word, they're clueless, right? Something along those lines. That they don't get it, it doesn't make sense to them, it doesn't register to them. And, and you may have had a conversation, a spiritual conversation, with an otherwise normally intelligent person, but when the thing turned to a spiritual side, and you may have brought up a spiritual point, not deep theology, but just a spiritual point here or there, that person just gets this look on their face. And the glaze comes over their eyes, and all of a sudden, you understand that they're in darkness. And you, what you pray for is not that you have a better and clever explanation of the spiritual uh, realities that you're trying to talk about. You pray for your friend, or your loved one, or whoever, whoever you're talking to, your coworker. You pray that God would lift the veil on their eyes so that they can see the spiritual truth. There are days. There are days. And, and to be, you know, to be perfectly honest, there's a lot of days 
when it seems like the darkness is absolutely winning. It seems like the darkness is beating the daylights out of the light. That the light doesn't have a chance. The darkness is powerful. The darkness seems like it has everyone blinded. The darkness seems like it's winning. Every time you, you, you turn on the TV or you look at social media or any of that, you know, or just interactions with folks that you know, blindness and spiritual darkness are absolutely everywhere. And it seems like it's, they are winning. It's winning. That's one of the greatest lies that Satan tells. It's the lie to a believer that darkness is right and you are wrong for following Jesus. The darkness lies and says, do bad stuff, no one's looking, it's dark. Think bad thoughts, do bad stuff, it doesn't matter. Paul says exactly the opposite. He says, brother and sister in Christ, he says, God, God, our God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You have changed. The gospel has changed you. Your eyes have been opened and now you are on the winning side. You indeed are now a member of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. There is power in this. There is power in these words. And later on in Paul's writings and other places, he'll talk about, you guys are children of the light. Now you need to walk as children of the light. You need to take those works of darkness, that stuff you play with. You need to put it on the side. You need to put that stuff away and need to walk like children of the light. And the encouragement here in Colossians chapter 1, what we need to be thankful for is that God has turned the lights on for us. When I was, I was a kid in a farmhouse growing up with my folks and my many siblings that I had. And my dad was a child of the Depression. And when he, was, when he was growing up in the 30s, his parents lost their house because of the Depression and all, the, all this, the bad economic situation of the 1930s, if you can imagine a time 90 years ago. And so he would go downstairs in the kitchen. We had a, kind of like a hanging lamp, uh, uh, and, and it would have like several lights. You know how they go. And he would like unscrew the light bulbs of several of the lights. Dad, why do you do that? Bless his heart. I want the electric bill to go down. And the thought behind it was, you know, it's like, you know, maybe, maybe your mom or your dad was like this. They, you know, why did you leave the lights on? Turn the lights off. Why are the lights on everywhere all the time? And I don't know if it's exactly about the electric bill. I'm not sure exactly what it's about. But, you know, I find myself doing that, right? And my kids will bear testimony after church if you'd like them to. The thought is... The thought is, we have to think this is the opposite. You and I are children of the light. We have, been, we have been delivered into the kingdom of God's dear son. And what's our job? Our job as God's children is to go to every room that we're in in life. Whether it's in our house or our place of work or our neighbors or our friends. Go into every room and turn lights on. That's our job. Not the electric bills, spiritual lights. The lights of God's love. 
the lights of God's care. We sung about God's love today. If, if, if you get anything of the service today, remember this, Jesus loves you and nothing will ever change that. Oh my goodness. The kingdom of God. Paul doesn't often talk about the kingdom of God, but when he does, it's always so powerful. He says we're, we're members of the kingdom of God. We're been, we've been transferred into the kingdom of his dear son. In Romans chapter 14, verse 17, he says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and, whole, and joy in the spirit. The world is filled with power plays and, and the world's about power and getting power and exerting power. If you're a dictator, you want to get power and align the armies behind you. If you're, you want to be powerful economically, you make sure that the rules are set in your favor so that you can get all the economic power that you can get. And, you know, everyone, you know, when you have, when you want, when you have power, you want more power. And, you know, it's just one of those things that it's human nature to desire power. And they want more power. And, you know, whether you consider yourself a control freak or not, the idea of, of being in control of your own life, even if it's your own little portion of the world, is this idea that I want power. I want power for myself. And what God tells us in this talking about the kingdom in the, in, throughout Paul's writings is that the kingdom is never about you or me having power. It's about God's power resting in us. It's about God's power working through us. It's about God's power spreading the gospel in all of its power, in all of its righteousness, in all of its justice to the world that absolutely needs to see it. What a wonderful thing to be thankful for, to be placed in the kingdom of God's dear son. And on those days... When you feel like darkness is winning, go back to this verse in Colossians 1.13 and assure yourself, reassure yourself that the kingdom of God bows to no one. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things that we worry about will be taken care of. It doesn't mean never plan and don't take care of stuff. It means open your spiritual eyes first. We pray the Lord's Prayer. We pray the Our Father. We pray, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's one last picture I want you to consider from Colossians 1. The first one was the picture of inheritance. The, section, the second one was the picture of light triumphing over darkness. This last picture in verse 14 is a very short verse, but it's powerful. And again, you unpack it and the glories of God just appear, right? In whom we have redemption, the Son, the forgiveness of sins. I don't know where you are with the Lord today. If you just come to church, it's kind of a force of habit. You were taught to do it as a child or, you know, one of those kinds of things. Or whether, um, you know, you've really thought about the claims of the Bible and the claims of Jesus and, and what God has said about you and what God has said about himself and what God has said about your salvation. But here very simply, um, what it means to be a Christian is here. 
Sometimes people think that being a Christian means that you were born in a certain place. You know, I was born in America as opposed to a, a country that doesn't have Christianity within its traditions. Or I was born to a certain family, a family that went to church as opposed to a family that went to some, that did something else or maybe nothing else. Or, I, you know, this was just kind of the way I was, you know, taught as a child. Uh, those things are, are interesting and sociologically important, I'm sure. But what does it mean to be a Christian? What it means to be a Christian, in verse 14, is this description of we are redeemed. We have the forgiveness of sins. Sometimes I hear people say that I've done too much to be forgiven. Or they feel like just the whole weight of the world is on them. And the scripture says this, that God, for the believing sinner, for those of us who are children of God, God takes every debt of sin that's on our account and he wipes it clean. Because you're a good person? No. Because I'm a good person? No. Because we did some stuff. We wrote a check. We, you know, we helped a person across the road. Something like that. No, 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 no. God gave us redemption. God gave us forgiveness. Do you see it today? I mean, do you hear it today? What I want you to hear, what I want you to know, what I want you to understand is that God is at work in our lives and he wants us to rejoice and be glad. He wants our hearts to be filled with this joy that's characteristic of his kingdom. Joy and spirit and all of those things. For a Christian, for a Christian to be exclusively grouchy, embittered, and angry. For a Christian to be described in those words is an absolute 100% contradiction to the gospel. The gospel fills our heart with joy. Now, there's stuff that makes, you know, not, I know some folks that every time they get mad, well, Jesus toppled the tables. Well, you know what? That's Jesus. <laughs> when I topple the tables, it's because somebody bugged me. The thought is, the thought is, I believe, we don't know all that God has given to us. And these verses are here for us to explore that in depth, to understand it more fully. You've been redeemed. That's very personal. You knew the weight of sin on you. When you, asked, when you asked the Lord for forgiveness, when you became a Christian, you knew the weight of sin on you. And you know what God said? I forgive. I declare you to be righteous because Jesus died and rose again for your sins. If we just push this just a little bit more, there's a personal sense of redemption and forgiveness. But there's also a corporate sense where you and I, wherever God puts us in this life, we can be agents of redemption, agents of forgiveness. Jesus said, because you've been forgiven, you ought to forgive others. Jesus does not look kindly in the Gospels about people who are forgiven a lot, but then don't forgive anybody anything ever. No, Jesus doesn't look kindly on that at all. He wants us to extend the fact that we have been redeemed and God is renewing us. God, he wants us to extend that to the world in which we live. 
And I know some days it doesn't seem like we can make a big difference in the world in which we live. It seems like the darkness is winning. But you know what? You claim God in the name of the Lord. Lord, you have me here for redemptive purposes. I don't know exactly what that looks like. I don't know exactly how that how that works out in my life. I don't know if you want me to go to a certain place or talk to certain people or, or do, I don't, I'm not sure what it is. But I am part of this project. You have called me to this. It is the highest calling I have as a follower of Christ. I want to be involved in the redemptive work which you've called us to do. Because we're citizens of the kingdom of God, because we have access in verse 11 to being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Because of these things, God can and he will use you. You don't have any idea what the impact of you going somewhere and turning the lights on for people by showing them God's love. You have no idea how lives will be changed. You have no idea what impact you'll have in the days to come. But I invite you to think about it and to pray over it because God's calling us to greatness. He is calling us to greatness. We are citizens of God's kingdom and he wants us to spread that wherever we go. Let us pray. Loving God, we live in a world that's just crippled by sin. But thank you for Jesus who died for our sin. My prayer is for anyone today who has not trusted in Christ. That the claims of Christ would be real in their heart and in their lives. That they would see Jesus not simply as a good teacher or a moral man or someone who was an interesting philosopher. But they would see Jesus as who he is, the savior of the world. We pray today that we would live out kingdom virtues wherever we are. That we would follow you wherever you call us. That we would put you first in our hearts and our lives. We know that's costly sometimes. We know sometimes it brings us through difficult valleys. But we rejoice today, dear Father, that wherever you called us to be, you have promised that you will love us and you will take care of us, and that we will not be in want. So today, dear Father, we commit ourselves to you, thanking you for all you have done. Open our spiritual eyes to see what you have for us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.